Julie Freem is the president and CEO of the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. On today's show, she talks about the important issues her members face, including finding the right talent and keeping up with massive technological change. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, people think that car companies build cars, and they do but they make those cars out of all kinds of materials and parts and components, which all come from suppliers. So does most of the technological innovation in those parts and components. So today, we're gonna to take a deep dive into the supplier side of the business. And we're doing that because we've got Julie Freem, the president and CEO of the Original Equipment Supplier Association, the OESA. And thank you, Julie, for being here. Thank you for having me. Also joining me today is Dustin Walsh from Cranes Detroit Business, and great to have you here too, Dustin. Julie, so many things that we could talk about. I, I, I'm just sort of curious, well, number one, how many members do you have? How many suppliers are part of OESA? We have almost 500 members, and uh, of that, about 400 are suppliers. So, and then we have a group of what we call affiliate members, people associated with the business, but that choose to join OESA. Okay, let's bore in on those 400, which mm -hmm. is a huge part of the supplier mm -hmm. industry. What are they telling you these days? I mean, well, what are the, the, the thoughts, the concerns, the hopes of the supplier base? There's a number of them, but uh, first and foremost, uh, what I hear at every meeting I go to is, we are worried about having enough talent to be able to support the industry. Um, so whether it's talent in terms of engineers and uh, their capabilities or it's skilled labor, that is one of the biggest issues uh, that they see. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> can't get the talent they need. What are some of the other things that you're hearing about? They're very worried about um, being able to uh, execute and uh, put in place the type of technology that they need to move forward. It's, um, it's a combination of putting in enough money in R&D at the same time they need to maintain the business that they have. Uh, it's certainly something that the automakers are going through too, uh, but suppliers are very concerned about that and being able to innovate the way that they need to. And as you said in your opening, you know, 70% of the technology that goes into the vehicle right now comes from suppliers. So they have a big job uh, to do and that's why they're concerned about it. I think the other thing that really um, keeps some of our members up at night is the volatility or the market uncertainty, uh, particularly, obviously, in the U.S. right now. Um, that's a big concern. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of those concerns. I got to believe one of them is NAFTA. The Trump administration mm -hmm. is really pushing to, well, we don't know yet, modify it, blow it all up. I'm not sure what's going to happen. What are your thoughts and what are your members specifically worried about when it comes to NAFTA? Well, I think what they're worried about is the blow-it-all-up scenario. I think that is a significant concern. I, I, the NAFTA has been in place now 24 years, and we have created a business around having NAFTA in place, which means as an industry, we've put capital in, we've trained our people, we are operating with this uh, business proposition and to change it suddenly means that everything that has been put in place for those last 24 years perhaps no longer holds. And so what's competitive one day might not be competitive the next. So they're very concerned if NAFTA were to go away completely. Um, 
there are opportunities within NAFTA, and, and it should be looked at. It's 24 years old, as I said, so it should be looked at. It should be improved. Things should be uh, explored in terms of updating, the way border crossings are handled, some of the rules and regulations within the context of NAFTA. But to completely disband it um, is a very big concern of our members. What are those modifications that you're hearing that your members want? There are some in terms of uh, how uh, regional value is assigned in terms of the percentages, things that are given credit. So, for instance, right now, R&D or um, specific investments are not given credit. That would be very helpful if it was given credit as part of uh, the NAFTA agreement. Or the content. Yes, okay. correct. So um, those are some of the things that could be explored and would help, uh, would help our members and I think would help the overall context of the agreement. Are, are investments being delayed because of this? In some cases, yes. Um, people would like to understand, and that's that uncertainty that they have or that market volatility. They're worried about it, and so they're, they're hesitating as long as they can in terms of making those investments before they move forward. Another big concern of theirs, I got to believe, of your members is this talk about raising tariffs on steel and aluminum. It would impact them directly, I would think. Many members, yes. It's, it's going to impact them directly, and I would say everyone it will impact indirectly. Um, in the discussions that uh, at least I've been a part of, I've seen where every um, one person that gets added to the steel industry impacts 18 people, the employment of 18 people downstream. That's some of the, the research that we've seen from nonpartisan, non, you know, non-biased organizations. So what you're saying is if the tariffs bring back one steel job, we're going to lose 18 other Correct. jobs. Correct. And uh, so it could have a devastating impact. Um, first of all, just in terms of the U.S. employment, it also will have a big impact on the industry. And, and getting into the details just a bit, if you currently import steel and use that to manufacture a product, um, and suddenly now you have to pay a tariff on that, 25% more for that steel, it may be more beneficial for your competitor who is overseas to manufacture that product, get it to a finished good, and import it into the U.S., bring it to the U.S. Um, with no tariff on it at all, and you can't compete. So that's where you begin to lose the jobs, is that those products that are currently made here using imported steel will now go overseas and come back to the U.S. as finished goods. Now, are you, <clears throat> is your organization doing anything? I, I know Motor Equipment Manufacturers Association is probably doing sure. the most lobbying, mm -hmm. um, but are you involved in lobbying Congress and, and, and well, the presidency uh, yes, in this case? absolutely. We are heavily involved, and you're right, our parent organization is doing that, um, and they're there full-time in Washington, D.C., but we are uh, participating with them. Uh, in fact, we have a fly-in with all of our members coming up in mid-April, uh, we will be taking many people uh, to the Hill and meeting with congressmen and uh, talking about some of these issues and making sure they understand the impact. And that's the biggest thing we can do is educate them because so often they don't really understand the impact that it's going to have on the particular industry. Right. And we did this, what, 14 years ago, and it was proven to be a pretty big disaster. Right. Correct. Um, so it's hard to hard not to argue that. Yeah. Julie, uh, Wilbur Ross is the 
uh, Commerce Secretary. Mm -hmm. He, uh, in his prior life, if you will, uh, has huge amounts of investments, a lot of them in automotive companies, IAC, International Automotive Components. I'm, I'm guessing they're a member of yours, or are they not? They are, yes. So does it help at all to go to Washington to lobby to have a guy whose companies were once or still are members of OESA? Yeah, I, and we have, and I've actually met with him and uh, had those discussions. I think his concerns are around in terms of, in particular, what are um, some of the economic challenges that are facing the industry and can we bring the jobs back to the U.S.? And that has been the driver in his mind in terms of what he would like to move forward. I would comment that perhaps we have different approaches on how that might be done. Gotcha. A lesson in unintended consequences? Yeah, a little bit. Sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting. You know, it, it always seems to me that one of the problems with NAFTA and all the automotive investment that may have left the United States and Canada to go to Mexico is their wages are so low. BMW opened a plant in Mexico last year. They're paying their unskilled workers $1.50 an hour. They're paying their skilled workers $2.50 an hour. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know how they can get away with paying such little money that would equate to maybe around $3,000 in wages for a year for uh, the, the unskilled and maybe four or $5,000 a year for the skilled tradespeople in a country whose per capita income is about $19,000. Isn't part of the solution of preventing so much investment going into Mexico out of the U.S. and Canada simply to get the wages up there? Well, one of the, the challenges we do have there is that there's they're beginning to run into the same issue we have here in the U.S., which is the availability of labor. And so I think that labor um, inflation, if you will, um, may become one of the challenges that we're faced with in Mexico as well as potentially in time here in the U.S. Um, so I think that is, you know, labor in Mexico, um, you have to let the market take care of where the market is. But um, we are seeing um, not enough skilled or unskilled labor working in the industry and their willingness to move from company to company for a very, what you might consider, small increase in pay. Sure. And I think we've also noticed there's, in Mexico, engineers are in such demand. Mm -hmm. There's potential you could actually make more money in Mexico as an engineer than you could here. I have, yes. I have heard that. I haven't seen that data right. directly, but I have sure. heard that m the engineers now in Mexico are making very good salaries. Mm -hmm. So, Well, you know, it, like I said, it, it's strange that as an engineer, you can make as much money in Mexico as you can in the U.S., and I've heard the same thing. I haven't heard more, but sure. I've heard, I've heard certainly as much or very close. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to working in the plants, boy, they pay their people peanuts. I mean, it, it's... I, and I think that's why so much investment has gone to Mexico, is these corporations recognize that their labor costs are going to be so significantly cheaper in Mexico. Why build plants in the United States or Canada? I would disagree with that a bit. I think one of the reasons why so many OEs and uh, a number of the suppliers have gone to Mexico is because of their multitude of free trade agreements. 46, and correct? Is it 46 now? I think it's 46, 46 or 45. It's yeah. a lot. A lot more than the U.S. <laughs> right. Has, for sure. More than anyone in the in the world, really, more than any other country. And so, with that comes the flexibility for them 
to export, uh, depending on wherever the market sort of moves within. Uh, no, and you know, I, I, I buy that argument. And that is a big, big incentive. It, it's to an that. incentive to go there, but remember, sixty percent of Mexican production still comes to the U.S. So I mean, it, the, the lion's share uh, still comes here. But you know, uh, another thing that I'd like to get into is. There's always going to be tension between car companies and suppliers. Mm -hmm. The car companies don't want to pay suppliers as, or want to pay them as little as they can. Suppliers want to try to get as much money for what they're selling as they can. What's the state of that relationship right now in the U.S. between suppliers and OEMs? Well, how do you think that's all going? It certainly varies by OEM and by supplier. So there, you know, if you're looking at it in general terms, I think it is better than it ever has been, um, at least in a long time. Um, there is a desire and a recognition on the part of OEs that they need to work with suppliers, um, that suppliers bring a lot of the technology and a lot of the innovation to them. Um, they also recognize, in OEMs do, in order to move to uh, the new mobility marketplace, they're going to need suppliers to support them in those efforts. And so there is, uh, I'll say long-term, a desire to make sure that they have good partners and they're working together. Um, there's always short-term issues. That's just how the business goes, and that's normal in any business. It happens. Um, but overall, I'd say they're much better than they have been in many years. Are we seeing pressure from OEMs on certain types of suppliers? Um, I would say like an Aptive has something that's very unique and they're not going to get as much pressure on pricing mm -hmm. as maybe a, a commodity. And I um, should just add for those that don't know, Aptive is a very high-tech company, yes. spin-off of Delphi. Sorry, Delphi. Correct. No, no, no. no, no. And versus, a, you know, a company that's making um, uh, steel or aluminum parts or whatever it may be that, that are more commonplace. Well, certainly. I mean, when a company has a product that is, you know, unique or technology um, if it's advanced in terms of its technology or its capabilities, they're going to have a little more leverage in the discussions with the OEs. Um, there's no question about it. Uh, I wouldn't say we see more pressure, per se, uh, any more than we've seen over the years. Sure. Um, but certainly that's where um, there's more discussion uh, at those commodity right. products. Sure. Mm -hmm. Speaking of high tech, boy. What a revolution we're seeing in the auto industry right now. Yeah. The big push to electric cars, the big push to autonomous cars, the push into mobility services. There's even talk that maybe people will not even own cars in the future and maybe just use ride-hailing services. This has got to be a high concern to a lot of your suppliers. The high-tech ones, not so much. They're on the bleeding edge of this. But if I'm in a traditional powertrain, if I work on internal combustion engine parts and components, this move to electrification, it, is it scaring your people? Is this a topic of discussion at OESA? I think long-term it's scaring people. Um, you know, if you look out and say, okay, 20 years from now, I mean, really long-term, um, where is the market going to be? But even if you talk about the fact that we're going to be 25%, um, just pick 25% electric by 2030, they're not all going to be full electric. They're going to be hybrids. They're still going to have an engine in them. I think there is a, an understanding that this move, while it gets talked about and gets a lot of press or maybe even a lot of hype, um, it is going to happen over a longer period of time than sometimes the hype. 
Well, your members are still making efforts to that. I mean, look at Borg Warner. They've, they've hired electrification. No they've hired battery charging. I mean, they're still doing those long, I mean, whether that's a, for a long-term play or maybe a shorter term, they're still making those acquisitions and moving that direction. And they know they need to. And this is where, you know, especially in the larger ones, they've begun that movement. So mm -hmm. the larger suppliers that have the capital that can, can do multiple R&D programs at the same time. I think where it becomes more, more challenging is within the smaller suppliers and some of the tier twos. How do they plan? Um, what do they have available for capital? And that's where we talk about the worry beads. Um, that's where there's a big concern within the supply base are those smaller suppliers, who, by the way, make up a big percentage of our members. So, so how, how do you help them? Um, part of what we do is we provide education um, in terms of what's happening in the industry, making sure they stay current. Um, we advocate on their behalf in Washington, D.C. as regulations change, so, and then we keep them current with what's happening. So there's a, there's a lot um, that we do to support them that independently, sort of one-off suppliers could not do on their own. They simply couldn't afford to do it. Speaking of uh, technology and, and this move to mobility, the center of the universe for that is pretty much Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Does this represent a new opportunity for OESA? Are there companies knocking on your door saying, hey, we want to learn how to sell to the auto industry? Because the little few anecdotes that I've run into is the tech companies in the Valley really don't know how to sell to traditional OEMs. Yeah, is Google a member? <laughs> Google is not a member, right. but we have uh, a number of members from the Valley that we have uh, recently added. Uh, we now have quarterly meetings in the Valley, um, so we go out there uh, every quarter, and we've done that for the last, really, year and a half, and we'll continue to do it. Um, at our last meeting, we had Zooks come in, and they presented and, and talked to our membership. And it's members that are there. It's, you know, yes, some members from, I'll say, the Detroit area go out, um, but it's primarily members that are based in uh, California. And so it's, it's interesting for us because we're beginning that to bridge back and forth between that. And there's, there's a need to take um, our knowledge of the auto industry and take it to those new suppliers uh, as they develop their new technology, help them understand what's going on in terms of the, auto the automotive space, what it is to be in a regulated environment like automotive, what it is to make quality like automotive uh, requires. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of innovation and sort of energy that comes from the Valley that we need to bring back to our more traditional suppliers. And so that's our goal, is to help be that bridge. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, where, where do you think this whole mobility and autonomous thing is going to go? How might that impact OESA and, and your members? Well, certainly for us, we think of it as an opportunity. So if you step back and say, as an association, what are we doing? We see it as an opportunity um, to move into a, a different space um, and to help as the OEs and the suppliers merge into, I'll say, mobility, we as an association also need to merge into mobility and integrate that ooh, integrate that into what we're doing. It's very important. And so that effort is underway. Part of what, the reason why we go to Silicon Valley is because of that. Um, we know we need to do that. So for us as an association, it's a good, it's a really good opportunity. You know, uh, I, I find it fascinating how suppliers are trying to evolve in this. So Bosch, maybe mm -hmm. the biggest automotive supplier in the world, 
just bought uh, a new mobility company in Detroit, Split. And uh, Magna just announced with who that they're, they're uh, Lyft. with Lyft. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this? Because potentially here you've got some of your members, Bosch and Magda in this case, that could end up competing directly against the car companies. Mm -hmm. how, how is this all going to evolve? I wish I knew. If I did, I'd be a very wealthy lady. <laughs> it, you know, it, and that's just it. It's evolving. And um, the whole marketplace is going to evolve. We have to uh, begin to better understand where we think consumers are going to go with this. I mean, ultimately, that's it. We have to watch what the consumers want. We have to understand that. Does that create tension within the room? Because at the end of the day, there are going to be winners and losers in this. And right now, they're sitting in the same rooms mm -hmm. in your meetings together, mm -hmm. talking about how the impacts are going to be different. I mean, is there contention there? I don't think there's contention. Sure. I think, you know, people are and have always been, and we're very careful but they're, as an organization, but they're very guarded about um, what they share. Uh, if they feel it's something that is proprietary or they've got something that they don't necessarily want to share, they're not going to share it. Um, but overall, you know, we continue to share best practices. And I'll give you, for instance, you know, there's a lot of companies that have tech venture firms. The bigger companies have started to have these offshoots to just go out and invest in technology. And there are a lot of lessons learned in that, you know, good and bad. What works, what doesn't work? Well, sharing that kind of information is not sharing your trade secrets or your market direction. It's sharing what you've learned in terms of this process. Those are the kinds of things that we try to bring to our members to help them to better understand uh, what's happening in this industry. But you know, J uh, Dustin's got a great uh, point there. Uh, you know, could this create tension? Suppliers starting to compete directly against car companies. It's just at the very beginning. I mean, it's only in the past few weeks that these announcements from Bosch and Magna have happened. I, I think this is uh, a fascinating, very beginning of a journey that's going to lead us right. to a very different automotive industry. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, you've seen a lot of M&A in the industry, and I think we're going to continue to see that, whether it's M&A or partnerships or joint ventures. We're going to see a lot of changes uh, in the coming years as people and companies sort through this and what makes sense for them. Mm -hmm. Do you provide your members with uh, counsel or education or what when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, M&A? Uh, not directly. Um, those are such specific issues in terms of, you know, whatever is happening with if it's your company, with your company and whatever you're doing. I, I'd say go to the go to the experts for that. Um, but certainly we talk about it and we talk about the changes that are happening in the industry relative to it. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, my overarching question here is, is one that we started with. You mentioned talent, of course, being the number one problem. What, what's the solution there? Oh, I wish I, I knew specifically what sure. the solution was. I think the um, part of what um, I encourage suppliers to think about is that in order to attract talent uh, in this industry, you're going to have to retool your culture. What worked for us as a supplier community the last 30, 50 years is not what's going to work for the next 30. What kind of changes do you want to see? Think about it from the perspective of we have uh, traditionally been an industry of, of baby boomers. 
I mean, frankly, that's the mo where most of the people have been um, age-wise in this industry. They're all getting ready to retire if they haven't retired already. And as an industry, we're skipping Gen X, so we're going right to Gen Y. We're going right to the 25 to 35-year-olds as in, in a majority of our workforce. And so suddenly we have to look at what works for that group of people in our industry, and they work differently. So we need to adjust our cultures, our everything from how we in, provide incentives to people, um, how we set up the workplace, what we do in terms of flexibility in their work environment, all of that needs to be looked at. And the quicker that suppliers look at that and begin to retool um, so that they can adapt and integrate those individuals into their workforce, the more successful they're going to be. I think there's an interesting correlation there between, uh, so there's a, there's a supplier called Zenuity, which is a, a joint venture between uh, Volvo and, and Autolive. And they have a really unique setup, so it's, it's all uh, high tech. And so they have people that are, that are uh, deep learning AI people from MIT that are making more money than their bosses. Mm -hmm. And so there's this really unique dynamic happening where these 26-year-old kids are, are the power brokers in there, and then the bosses are having to, to relearn how to, how to handle that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be really interesting how that plays out within auto companies as they blend these higher-educated, really specialized people in with the traditional middle management, white-collar auto industry. And I think it's particularly more difficult for smaller suppliers, right? Mm -hmm. Because you really have to rethink your whole business top to bottom. And so talking about that and working through that and sharing best practices is a big part of what, as an association, we need to, you know, we do and we need to continue to do to help them. So we're getting down to the, the very end here. When they're sharing best practices and all that sort of thing, what's the trend line? What, what are some of the things that, you know, you can walk away with and say, I can start doing that this afternoon? Well, certainly more flexibility in the workplace. And, and by that, um, you know, when we talk to the younger generation, they want to have the ability to work wherever they are, work from home, uh, have the hours they want. Doesn't mean they don't want to work hard. They do, but they, they work differently. And we, as an industry, need to accommodate and adjust to that. Okay, well, there's one very specific thing we can walk away from the show with. But with there that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Julie Frame, thanks so much for coming in. Very thank interesting you. what you're doing at OESA. Dustin Walsh, thank you for being part of the show, too. Really thank appreciate you. it. And of course, always have to thank all of you for having tuned in.